You are listening to the Smart Betting Club podcast with me, your host, Peter Lynn. For the very latest on what it takes to make your betting profitable, including the experts you should follow, please visit the SBC website at smartbettingclub.com. It's an interview with a difference today, as the man I am chatting to is more used to posing the questions than answering them. Simon Knott is my guest, and he is somebody steeped in betting, working in the ring for several on-course bookmakers, and now perhaps most famous for his Betting People series of interviews with some of the biggest movers and shakers around. We explore Simon's time working on course and the buzz this used to generate for both bookmakers and punters alike with the need for quick thinking, excellent math skills, and a very thick skin. Simon also discusses how on-course bookmaking has changed. Those firms, including some up-and-comers making it pay, and why punters might wish to consider venturing back to the race course to get their bets on. He also shares his thoughts on the Betting People series of interviews, some of the guests he has had on, how it all began, and the plans to develop it further. As well as being someone with a wealth of experience in the betting world, Simon is also one of the nicest guys you would ever hope to meet, and so it was an absolute pleasure to spend time talking to him for this episode. So sit back and enjoy my interview with Simon Knott. This episode is the interview equivalent of the poacher turned gamekeeper concept, as today's guest is a man used to asking the questions rather than answering them. So it's a big welcome to the podcast to Simon Knott. Simon, how are you and how does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Pete. And it's an honour to be invited. You get normally have people a lot cleverer than me on here. So uh, thank you very much for asking me. Well, I don't know about that, Simon. I've read your book and I've been following you what you do quite closely. So I think there's quite a lot to quite a lot to to analyse today and ask you about. Uh, and obviously most people do know you from your betting people videos and Star Sports blogs and blogs on on your own website. But I'd like to know a little bit more about you. I mean, how do you currently describe what it is you do? You're a freelancer writing about betting and music or an author. You also work on course for some bookmakers. You wear quite a few different hats across the betting world. How do you describe yourself? Yeah, well, I've always been a little bit sort of like that. I mean, music and um, racing's always run parallel in my life. Um, I'm basically a freelancer who jumps at the chance to go racing. I'm happiest whenever I'm at the races. Always looking for new opportunities. I've written blogs for 20 years, probably. I used to write for my local paper in exchange for getting me into the races for free. And I've always, I've been trying for a long time to sort of get to somewhere where I am, you know, but I've done, most of it's been done for love. And now that I can sort of earn a few quid out of it as well, um, I thank my lucky stars. And I, I think of myself as a promoter of the betting ring. Definitely. Love the betting ring. It's been my life since I left the army when I was a youngster. And, uh, so I owe it a lot, so I try and keep it going in my small way. Well, definitely, I certainly will get onto your book because it does talk about that extensively in your work on, on the betting ring. But I want to ask you as well you know, about the music side of it. Where does that fit into it? Are you a musician yourself? or are you just? A, I've seen a, a pretty big vinyl collection, judging by some photos of you. <laughs> well, I'm not, a, I'm not a musician. I'd like to be. It's one of those things I've never been able to focus on purely one thing. Um, I've got a double bass, which I've had for about 20 years. I can slap out a 12 bar on it um i love rockabilly music punk music uh that sort of thing i would say i'm an addict if there was a alcoholics anonymous for vinyl collectors i would have to join it because i can't i can't resist a colored vinyl limited edition or something like that and also i've written for music magazines and fanzines probably as long as i've been writing about racing i write now for uh, a few mags uh Vivla rock which i sort of interviewed a few people like the stray cats and uh you know, sort of older rockabilly type people and another magazine, which is like a scene-based UK rock and roll, which is just, you know, purely rock and roll, rockabilly, sort of people that go to gigs. And I do both of that and I uh, sort the adverts out for UK rock and roll. And Viva La Rock, I get paid. That's another thing that I've done for years and years and suddenly I, you know, and I've done a few sleeve notes for CDs, that sort of thing. So yeah, I, you know, it runs parallel nicely, racing and rock and roll. Racing and rock and roll. But what is it like? Obviously, you're working in in the betting world as you know, a blogger and writing. The reality of life as a journalist in the betting world seems to be a, a fairly tough gig, so it's quite hard to carve out that niche for yourself. Well, like I said, I've been trying to do it for 20-odd years, and I think the niche for me is a niche. I mean, I think I'm probably the only person that writes regularly and has written regularly about the betting ring, mm-hmm. because you know, even more so these days, people just, you know, they, it's a dirty word, they're ignoring betting, trying to ignore betting. 
And I personally think that it's one of the biggest draws on a race course. And the race courses don't realise it. And it's at their peril to let the betting ring dwindle. It's a big blow that they took the SP away, which I think was a mistake. And there's still lots going on there. I mean, I'm in mourning for how the betting ring used to be because it was such a fantastic time to be alive. You know, working on course, we're so privileged to be able to do that. So that's never going to come back. And I'm in mourning for that. And I'm, it's like I'm trying to keep pumping on its chest to keep it, to keep a spark of it going, you know? Yeah. That, that's just my little thing that I do. And luckily I get paid for it in a, in a certain extent sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly comes to life in your book. It's called Skint Mob. It's a great book, really good read. It talks about your journey, you know, all the experiences and the various stories. We'll, we'll get into some of that as we talk today, hopefully. But what is it, first of all, that appealed to you about betting, you know, and racing and the world of bookmaking? I think it was, was it the landlord or one of the pubs you drank in and it all just kind of spiralled from there? Well, it's like anybody, when they're, uh, when they're sort of just nearly an adult, illegally, um, there was a, a pub that used to be a little bit lax about serving people that were 17 a beer, and it was very well, uh, near a betting shop, which didn't mind too much either. And it's the lure of the two places. I'll be sat in the pub on a Saturday afternoon, and people come rushing in from the betting shop next door. And I had no interest whatsoever. I'd always been, you know, the Grand National was all we ever got in our family, was all we ever got um you know, to racing, yeah. you know, people come running in saying, oh, I've got three out of four and a Yankee and the excitement. And so when I sort of braved my way in, I remember the first bet, 50 pence each way on a horse called Cat of Nine Tails at two to seven and it got beat. Two I had no idea seven. what two to seven, <laughs> I had no idea what two to seven meant. I just saw that all the tipsters had tipped it, like 50 pence each way was two pints. That was quite a lot in those days. But I, I that's the sort of time when big deal was on the telly, when Arthur Daly, you know, I liked all that the excitement of all that sort of roguish stuff and the betting shop and the pub next to each other, you know, how could you resist really? Absolutely. But then working there, you connected to, is it William Jacqueline, who that was your first on-course bookmaking work? And you, you yeah. describe it as the best apprenticeship you could have hoped for. Yeah, well, I've got to say that in between, I mean, started off going in the betting shop and going in the pubs, but it made racing fans of all of us. Mm-hmm. We, we'd go in the pubs, predominantly to try and spin up your money, we all lose. I'd lose my wages every Friday afternoon. I worked in a slaughterhouse, get paid in cash at 12 o'clock. And most of it, apart from my mum's lodge, which was sacrosanct, was always, I always had that left, but quite often that was it. But it made racing fans of us. We used to do 10 to follows, that sort of thing, you know. And then we started to go, ra- we wanted to go racing because all we ever saw was the Saturday on the telly because you were working in the week. We listened to it on the, on the thing. And Dave Sims, that worked, was the manager at the Boers, and he was only about, must have been only about 24, 25. He used to work for bookies, including Jack Lynn, and he knew everybody. So he, he told us about, we should go, we went to the Mackerson, first of all, in uh, 1983, Cheltenham. And he, he didn't come with us, he had to work, but he, you know, he told us all about what to do and all that. And I just remember, I don't remember anything that won that day. I just remember being in that betting ring and just, stood there, open-mouthed at what was going on around me, the excitement of it all, the money flying about, the people pushing and shoving, the shouting, yeah. the frantic rubbing of the odds. It was just, everything about it was just what I, this is for me, absolutely for me. And then I probably, I went racing once more. That was with Dave Sims, the Chepstow for the Welsh Grand National. Went to Swindon Dogs the night before. Then not long after that, I joined the army. So it's when I come out of the army, four years later, I went racing when I first came out and it on leave, that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, Dave Sims rang me up one day. He said, I want to play skills tonight. Will you work the floor for Jack Lynn? And it was at Taunton, Taunton evening meeting. And I jumped at the chance. I knew what I had to do because he taught me tic-tac and he taught me a bit of slang and that sort of thing. And I went to Taunton and the first day I worked for them, the first bet they had, they laid was a monkey at four to five. Very unusually, Eddie Baxter up the road put up nine to ten, which is a price you never saw. I told him it's nine to ten. So as the Lins would do, Roy hopped off the stool at the monkey back, cop, you know, to win four hundred and fifty quid. And Jack said, "The first thing you've said, you've earned more than your wages. You've got the job, basically." And then from then, I was third man, and then I worked for them for five years. Ultimately, you know, working with them all the time. So that's how that happened. <laughs> Long-winded. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, well, there's a lot in there. It's obviously details out in the book. Talk about your, you know, stint in the military, how your love of racing and bookmaking was cultivated through, through that exposure to it, through you know going for a pint before you're 18. I was lucky the the pub I went into when I was, I think I was 16, didn't have a bookmaker's next door. <laughs> <laughs> so just as well, really, because I think there's two ways to spend your money there, isn't there? So uh, drinking and, and betting. But um, to, in terms of you said you were a floorman. The you were you said third man there up to a floorman. What were you? What was the role that you you actually had for the lins and then moving forward on the ring? Well, the floorman was the eyes and the ears of the bookmaker, basically. So you stand in front of the bookmaker, facing him, and you watch all the other books and you tick tack the prices to your bookmaker just discreetly. Any price changes if the favourite was being backed. If you saw the five to two being taken, you sort of shout that five to two's on the thumb. That was the I don't know why it's called on the thumb, mm-hmm. but on wagging your thumb was the the warning sign that the favourite was going. You tick tack the possibly the, the price and show the on the thumb. Or, but basically, you were his eyes and ears. And also, if somebody came in, the Jack was a very he tried betting overs every race. He tried greening up long before greening up existed. So it's very important to them that he didn't miss a price. So that's why he was the best teacher. Because if they were seven and they laid uh, 570, they would expect me to be able to get at least that back or better. The idea was if you could beat the price in a hedge bet, then that would make their book better. And woe betide if you missed the price, then that would mess their book right up. You know, So they liked to bet overs every race if they could. What they were called by some of the ring were fiddlers, but what they actually were was very good bookmakers. Because yeah. they weren't betting in the best pitches, they were betting in the poor pitches. So you had to learn quickly to, you know, as soon as you lost concentration, you would miss that favourite being back from five to two in the two to one and they'd get landed with a bet which you couldn't get out of. And then they were gambling and they didn't like gambling. They liked to have a tidy books. So that was brilliant. You know, you, it's a very difficult person to work for, but you were the best four man on the, in, the, in the ring after a few years of that. She must be particularly good at doing sums in your head quite quickly or the fractions and the various odds and, you know, working out the mathematics of it all. Well, for several several years, I the first thing I ever did was write the fractions on the race card. So from 100 to 3, all the way down through 114, 116. So if they, quite often with them, they'd, they'd sort of say, back a horse back to win 100 quid. So if it was 7 to 1, you knew it was 114. You know, and after a while you learnt it. But you'd always have the brain freeze and they'd say, back it back to win 250 or something. And sometimes you'd, uh, your brain would go, so you'd just call it into the bookmaker to win 250. And just at a devilment, they'd say, if you could tell me the bet, you've got the bet. And, you know, it was like, you'd know it. If you had the time to think of it, you'd know it. But just in the heat of the moment. Of course. And running around and the price is going everywhere. And the bookmakers in those days were great at bluffing you. So that you'd call in like, a, I don't know, an even 400 or something like that. And they'd hear you and they'd see the price going four to five everywhere. So they'd rub it off the board and then vacantly look above your head and then pretend they had an urge you that sort of thing. Then you'd have to go back and they're like, you didn't come back with nothing. And Oh, it's brilliant. You know, it, it was exciting all day, nearly always. Yeah. It certainly comes across like that because there was some drama or a high pressure event with high stakes are on the line. And uh, so certainly the book really helps to bring that to life. I was going to ask you, you mentioned Tic Tac there, which is the, or what you call it, bookmaker sign language or the way that you communicated. Yeah. Are you able to still do that? Is it just... You know, muscle memory now. It's one of those things, once it's in your brain, it's in your brain. It, and also, the slang describes the tic-tac. So when you were calling five to two, it'd be your, your fingers come up to your eyes and go out forwards. Well, that the slang for a five to two was eyes. So you wouldn't say to the bookmaker in a loud voice, the five to two's going, because all the punters would hear you. You just say, <laughs> eyes, eyes is going, or, or putting your both hands on the top of your head is nine to four. That, so nine to four slang was top of the head. Down out in the West Country, six to four was um, your hand on your left arm by your elbow. So the slang for six to four was half arm. The sign for five to four was wrist on your on your wrist. So you say wrist. You know, eleven to ten was tips. Your fingers touching each other. You know, so all the slang helped you remember the tic tac because this, a lot of the slang was describing the tic tac, but a lot of the punters didn't understand it. So it's ingrained in my brain now. Mm-hmm. It's like when doctors talk in Latin, you know, so you can't understand what's particularly wrong with the patient, or you know, the, it's a, it's a little bit of code, isn't it, for for them? So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I used to see like John McCreek and those kind of people on on the racing shows, and it just seemed another world, and obviously one where if you're part of it, you know, you're almost part of a uh, a bit of a secret there, um, and and how it all worked. And uh, but in terms of the actual 
on course, it seemed to really, you talked about a really challenging environment. You had to really be on your, your toes every day. You really had to be very smart and very aware of exactly what's happening because pressure's on, you know, seconds really matter. How did you cope with it or did you find it at times a bit too much? No, I loved it. It was brilliant. And you get public bollockings from your boss, you know. It, it, Roy would throw the book on the floor if you missed the price. You know, it'd be, there'd be that sort of high pressure that other people used to laugh and everybody on the race course soon knew my name. Because as soon as they they laid up, every Simon shouting out all around the ring, and all the other bookies are taking the Mickey Simon. He wants you to have one hundred seven back or something like that, you know. Because they always, even though they're the be- one of the best bookies on the track, they used to take the Mickey. But you know, I loved it, and it was, um, you know, where'd you get your excitement like that? I imagine it was a bit like working on the stock market floor used to be, or at a car auction, or something like that. You know, plus it was a travelling circus. Everybody got to know each other. Um, you know, there'd be a lot of Mickey taking going on, but also. You know, if one of the big bookmakers saw me running around looking panicked and they'd sort of call you over, something like Harry Metcalf and say, what are you looking for, Simon? I'd say, oh, 228. And he might have, you know, might have already had six on his board. So you can have, you know, got that with me, that sort of thing. You know, and it was it was just great. And plus you got the racing as well. And at a time, there's loads of professional, well, loads, there's lots of punters that, you know, won on a regular basis. People you had to keep your eye out for. You, knew, you had to get to know who, you know who people were, that sort of thing. It was, yeah, it was great. Really, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm in mourning for it. I loved it, and I was so lucky to be part of it. Yeah, and on course bookmaking was tax free at the time as well, wasn't it? If you were at the races, yeah. In my in my time, it was. Yeah, mm. in, by the time I started working on course, there was no tax. Yeah, so which is why it kind of encouraged so many people to come, and that's where you could get your bets on, obviously, pre-internet, uh, pre-mobile phones. You, you mentioned there as well about the abuse, not so much the abuse, but the, you know, you'll get a dressing down, but I was watching a conversation on Twitter last week where you were coming for some criticism for some opinions that you put forward. It just made me laugh because you, you definitely you know, you know, definitely get the sense from reading the book that you had to know, you had to have very thick skin. Perhaps your background in the military helped with that, but I imagine quite a few people perhaps might not react the same way you would do to being shouted at by your boss on course. When you've stood in a parade ring and you've got a sergeant major screaming at you with spit flying in your face, all you got to do is look at his cat badge. That was always the trick. Look at their cat badge and just ignore everything they're saying. I mean, a few, few people on Twitter, I don't care. That's what they say, you know, makes no difference to me. I, I, I make a mistake sometimes of having an opinion. I shouldn't do really because it's over, it's, they're wasting their time with me because none of it makes any, you know, doesn't affect me at all. One time with the Lins, I just left. I just left the course because um, there's a bookmaker called Benny Edwards and Benny Edwards, bless him, he, I suppose he was probably going a bit senile or whatever you call it by then. And uh, he said that I hadn't paid a bet, that I did pay the bet. And then Roy sort of gave me a dressing down in front of all these punters. It was freezing cold. It was soaking wet. And one of them started to laugh. And um, I thought, I've had enough of this. So I just walked out. I walked home. I got hitchhiked, actually. I got a lift home. And uh, they didn't realise I was gone until they were screaming at me for the show for the next race. Yeah. But uh, that was the only time I'd thought, right, you know, nobody's talking to me like that. But uh, it was all forgiven again. Yeah, you, you were back working there not so long late, not too long later. Were you, so. well, it was, it was <laughs> Cheltenham coming. I think it was the Taunton before Cheltenham, so they needed me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's uh, ask you. You mentioned a few times here about your things have changed. Obviously, the biggest change. Well, the first change was computerization of on course bookmaking. But obviously, you were still on course. It was just enabling you to work more efficiently. Yeah. But then the biggest change has been the exchanges. Yeah. And the betting ring is very different now. It seems. You know, is it just the big meetings where it's it's viable these days for bookmakers to to kind of make it pay? I think it's still viable everywhere because the amount of people that still come into the betting ring to have a bet. But you haven't got that sort of excitement anymore. You haven't got that it's quite so much money. You haven't got any floor men running around. You haven't got anybody hedging in the ring. That was always part of the fun. You couldn't wait for a bet, you know, come back this back to win a, a monkey or a hundred quid or whatever it was. You know, and in the early days, I mean, I learned to Clark. You just had a pencil and a big a big ledger. And the person I worked for, Dave Phillips, is one of the first people to get the um, computerized system. John Lovell, mm-hmm. whose sons are now Dragon Bet, who I've done a bit of work for, he brought the computers back from Australia. And it was like a car batteries to power them, a run-of-the-mill laptop with a rudimentary program. It all balanced on these beer crates. And I remember that, you know, they tr- trying to add at Cheltenham and all these people stood around laughing and sniggering. And it was only a year before nearly everybody, or probably a bit longer before everybody got them, you know? Because what the secret was, it wasn't so much that you knew where you were, because most of the clerks were very, very good. So the bookmaker would take a glance and you would know where he stood in his book. 
It was the paying out. That's what did it. The uh, the punters loved. They couldn't work out how we knew what horse they backed because you get a little card with three numbers on it, four eight two, something like that. You just get and the clerk could write the bet twenty pound win red rum ticket four eight two. We would know, but they wouldn't know how we knew. So they yeah. always were a little bit dubious that we were trying because everybody thought bookmakers were crooks <laughs> yeah. and all the rest of it. So what would happen when, as soon as you printed a ticket, which showed the name of the horse and the stake they'd had on, and most importantly, what they had to come if it won, that was it. I mean, we're at Glorious Goodwood with Dave Phillips, and punters were literally queuing on. And I can remember Peter Sutton better next to us now. He had the normal kit. He kept hopping off his stool and looking up at our board to see if we were tearing it up, you know, topping him up and everything. But we weren't, mm-hmm. just because they wanted those tickets. And that's what sold it. It wasn't anything else. It was that, initially anyway. So you know, obviously that kickstarted the, the revolution, if you like. Um, and what's it like these days then? You're on course bookmaking, you still obviously attend a lot of race meetings and you still blog about it. What's the reality of it like? Well, of course, Betfair changed everything. Betfair stopped. Um, first of all, it stopped money coming into the ring from the off course. The trade money was always very welcome in the ring. It'd be, you know, they're trying to shorten up one that was um, maybe the last leg in an acre or those, what they used to call the shop horse, which is popular in the betting shops in the morning. But when Betfair came along, all of a sudden, you know, people had a bottomless pit. They didn't have to hedge into the betting ring mm-hmm. because that would be very finite. As soon as there was a wave of money went around the betting ring, that price would be gone in the old days. If there was thousands of pounds on Betfair, they could just soak up all that money from the trade, not change the prices. They made a massive mistake there, really. The bookie's very short-sighted. But now, you know, it's still lively. It's still good fun, but that excitement is gone I, I hate to say you know you'd never been to carry a beer around in the old days it was beer was banned for the betting ring mm-hmm. <laughs> but these days it would have lasted long in those days because oh. the floor man would have been knocking people over and pints would have been flying because there was no stopping any any floor man if he was told to go and get a hedge bet you know be pushing up well not pushing but you know shoving your way through and calling the bets that used to be the thing you call the bets in over the top of the crowd so there might be 15 people trying to get the last bit of six to four You'd shout in 300 to 2. The bookie would say 300 to 2 down to Jack Lynn and rub it off. And then all the punters would be like, <laughs> you know, that's how, that's how it used to work. So um, all that buzz, that sort of buzz is gone. You still get flurries of people trying to get their bets on and stuff. And, it, you know, the big meetings are still exciting. But that there's no bookmakers aren't hedging with each other very rarely. <laughs> so that's a shame. That's, you know, sort of taking all the spirit out of the betting ring, really. Obviously, the punters can go on their phone if they want to bet too, which reduces perhaps the you know the necessity to to go and place a bet on course. It's all available at the click of a button. So almost bookmaking or betting on course becomes just a bit of an event, a day out, something unique rather than for the punter, rather than the only way they can get their bets on. Well, there's two things to that. I, I agree totally. And I, I think that the bookmakers should make a big thing of that. Bring your race course readies. If they come in racing, bet with the bookies. It's all good fun. There's still loads of characters there as part of the day out. But the other thing is anyone that can't get their bets on, come racing because you will get your bets on. All right, you won't be able to bet it five places each way the night before a Rick price. But if you like having monkeys and grands on, you'll get them on. And you won't, you know, you won't have to shop about it. And you can get them on each way yeah. as well. There's bookies there that will lay you. And it's not, you know, it keeps an old there are commission agents. That's all nonsense, you know. Some people do green up. But if you're at a Tuesday meeting in Exeter and somebody has a grand on one, you'll have a job to green that up. You know, the people that will take you on. And, you know, they, for the serious backer, and there are still serious backers going racing, you know, the value is definitely still there because you don't have to be that good to be restricted to, you know, I don't know anybody who can probably get 100 quid on, let alone sort of, you know, the sort of monkeys and stuff like that. So there is the value on course. And quite often the bookies, the bets and the very little margin is so competitive because sometimes it's quite quiet. They've got to try, you know, a lot of bookmakers think about the one day and getting their X's on the day or winning on the day. So they, their margins are, sometimes they're overbroke with the way they bet overall in the throughout a race. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of margin there. Uh, not plenty of margin, there's no margin. There's plenty, you know, they, they are, they're cutting it to the bone to be competitive. I see, yeah. Exactly, because they have to have to really fight for that customer. And the other thing is, as well, there's no affordability check. So if you're trying to get a monkey, you're trying to get 500 quid on, they're not going to say, well, hang on, let me see source of wealth or they want to check your bank account statement. So that's something that would certainly uh, appeal to the modern punter. And I was going to ask you, you mentioned John Lavelle and obviously his son James is doing Dragon Bet. 
mutual friend of ours, Anthony Kaminskis, is, is pushing ahead with AK bets uh, in Ireland. He's got, uh, he's you know, he's got quite a few pitches there. So we're seeing a few young bookmakers giving it a go and taking the opinion and trying to do something a little bit different to the corporates, the big firms that don't take an opinion. Do you see that as something that might develop a little bit further? Yeah, I think both of those firms have got a big future. One thing I've noticed, and bookmakers are going to hate me for this, but one thing I've noticed about bookmakers, especially on social media, if you put up a picture of a book of a bookmaker or make a comment about a betting ring, the first people that come on and slag it off are other bookmakers. It's uncanny. Mm. And they, they are their own worst enemy. There seems to be so much bitterness and resentfulness amongst... And it's terrible to see. And... and the Lovells, and I've known them since they were young lads. They're lovely guys and very bright. You know, they, they were involved with the early days of the um, betting and running exchanges. And Anthony, well, you know, he's a professional punter. He doesn't have anybody any sharper than him. And he does it his own way. People say, oh, that's not a book. You know, you've won on the odds on favourite. But Anthony just won on the odds on favourite. And you lot all did your cobbler. So who's the stupid one, you know? It, he does it his own way. But, uh, and I've, but I've only been to the big meetings, obviously. He only brings me over for the for the big ones so i've only seen the vibrant rings but i'm pretty sure that both of those firms even though they're totally different the way they operate will you know will do well and there's plenty of room for young people in in the betting ring but it's just having the money and you need the expertise as well you need to know what you're doing you know yeah and it's a, it's a full-on job you know it's not just uh seven races or whatever take place and you can you know, disappear. It's like three hours work. It's obviously a lot of work setting up transportation in all weathers and all conditions. And you obviously you write about that extensively actually in your time uh, at various courses. What, what's it like in Ireland though? And how does that compare? Because obviously you, you know, your experience is UK based predominantly, but you've been over to Ireland. Uh, are they doing things better there? I've just loved my experience in Ireland. Um, in a lot of ways, it's very, very similar but I think the camaraderie appears to be a lot better. Um, and the punters seem to be a lot more enthusiastic. And there's a lot more... I was at um, Navin with AK most recently. What he does, he's on the computer and he's just making the book. Because mm-hmm. traditionally, if you took a bet, you'd say 10 euros, number three, and the guy on the computer would type it in. But we've got the, um, they've got a little keypad. So you just put the bet in yourself. Well, I was making loads of ricks because I'm not used to it. But he's there making the book. So he's watching the exchange movements. He's got, you know, he knows any sharp money that he sort of spotted. So he's totally concentrating on the book, which is quite, you know, it's a very good way of doing it, which I've never seen before. Well, all we've got to do is anybody can take money, anybody. And there's some people, you know, be calling the punters, have a bit of a chat on the front, and then he's on the back, beaving away, making the book. So, um, but yeah, I I mean, I love going to Ireland. I, you know, look forward to going over again with him in the new year. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I say very friendly, very welcoming. Considering you know we're coming, I've coming over from England and sort of taking the job that somebody else could do over there. So uh, yeah, I've loved it. It's but very similar, you know, in the way it all actually works. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading more on it, and it's been great to follow AK's progress as it's like with Dragon Bet and other firms, and hopefully a few more uh, comes to the fore. I want to change tack slightly and ask you about well, still about on course and our bookmaker, but your outfits. You know, you're quite well known for your for your colourful garb. Uh, you've even been on the BBC you talk about in the book a uh, style challenge programme but is this the way you've always dressed or is it a conscious decision to kind of stand out on course so you know the guy wearing purple trousers has perhaps got that edge to get the attention of a punter versus the guy wearing a, a boring suit well if you, I think uh, skin mob's no longer um, in print so there's no pictures in the one you got but somewhere online there's a how I used to dress I used to I used to want to be like Barney Curley. He was my hero. Yeah. So I had like this this nearest to a fedora that I could get. And I used to have braces. And I used to want to look like what I thought a professional punter looked like, even though I used to do my money in cold blood. The coloured stuff sort of happened by accident. When I was working with Turf TV, I had a bet with somebody. I said, right, let's go and get a pair of those pink cords that we used to sort of look at people at Cheltenham. So I went down the, the, the shopping village and bought a pair of these pink cords and he chickened out one of the photographers. And then I just thought, bit, I always loved dressing up to go racing. It's all part of the fun, you know? It's the only problem is, is when you, you've got to get petrol on the way home and you've got like pink cords on and a, <laughs> a loud, a loud tweed coat or something. But I love it. It's all part, you know, I don't take myself seriously. I just do like it now and people expect it now. So, um, but AK, that was a stipulation. If you're coming over to work for me, you're going to wear ridiculous trousers. So ridiculous trousers now proliferate my wardrobe. And I, I, I love it. It's all part of the fun, all part of the day out. That's what I think of it. Definitely adds to the uh, tapestry of, of on-course bookmaking, certainly. I want to ask you as well about your your own betting. 
I mean, in the book, you talk about teaming up with the likes of Andrew Mount who, and enjoying a fair bit of success with him. You know, you lost your accounts, I think, through him. Are you able to get on? And uh, what's your kind of, how would you describe yourself as a punter? I'd describe myself as an extremely lazy punter because I don't know anything, literally, about, you know, about form. Because I got to know Andrew. He was working with Martin of Leicester on course. I was working with Ivor Perry. Got to know Andrew. We became friendly. And then he sort of said, I do this tipping service. He used to write books as well called Trend Horses. And he used to just add me to his tipping thing. And up until then, I'd never won. I'd always lost. You know, there were people that would give you marks, but I'd always lost. Um, and all of a sudden, I found that I was winning. I wasn't keeping records or anything, but I found that I was winning. So I started to keep records. And then Andrew asked if he could use some of my accounts that I had. So I let him and he, he sort of gave me a, a few quid commission, but then all my accounts are absolutely trounced. Um, but these days, I bet £15 a point. That's all I bet. So if recommend two points, I have 30 quid on. I follow Andrew with his GG on his just on his GG column, mm-hmm. and th- I and I do a spreadsheet for him. And a little bit of a plug for Andrew this year: the spreadsheet to advise prices, um, which I accept that nobody can get them all the time. It would be three hundred quid up almost, and to SP he's twenty quid down. So when people like Mark Holder and them talk about value, there it is illustrated. If you need to get on at the prices. So that I bet his, I'm lucky enough to get a few marks from people that I've, and marks, you know, their, their tips and people that I've sort of talked to in the past. And I subscribe to my little tip, who I know I've met the guy. He won't want me to say his name because he's just the professor, but I do know him of him. And I've been, I was told by Ben and people, he's extremely shrewd, very clever person, very nice person. And I subscribe to them and they show a profit every year I've subscribed to them. They very rarely have a one-point bet. It's nearly always a quarter. So for them, I'm £15 a quarter. So in effect, I'm £60 a point. And some of the other people I get marks from, I'm £60 a point, but only because they probably have a bet once a week. But everything's on a spreadsheet. I know exactly where I am. There's a couple of firms I've, I've bet with Fitstairs. They still lay me a bet. I can get those sort of tiny stakes on to a certain extent in the enhanced odds with Skybet because I think they've, they've grown me down to like 150 quid. But for my betting... You know, I can get that. And a couple of the others I can still get on with. So if I keep, you know, the, my modest stakes, I don't really have too much of a problem. It's only if somebody puts up a 33 to one shot or a 50 to one shot, you know, then you have to try and struggle to get on. But yeah, so with Andrew, we had fun with the Scoop 6, which is I'm such a shame that that's sort of gone down the pan, really. I know they're trying to re- revive it, but we won that three times with his syndicate. And um, we were laughing to uh, David Pipe at the Derby Awards this weekend. Madison de Burley were winning at 50 to one. Cost well, Andrew had the selection that won, which was Air Force One, which came second. The check would have been for over a million quid, but that was going in with everybody. So Harry Finley, and I think there were seven other winners, uh, including Andrew, you know, would have had a share of that. So, uh, yeah, but that was brilliant. Those were brilliant times, but 2008, 2009. Great, you know, it's a shame that they ruined the Scoop Six. Yeah, it is a shame. It is a shame. There's a couple of good tips there for people to follow Andrew Mount and my little tip. A couple that I need to, to check out, obviously, very aware of Andrew. and uh, But uh, sounds like he's got a, a good record there. So a couple to check out. Uh, I was, you mentioned there as well, you know, getting a mark. But that was kind of a segue to my next series of questions about the betting people series. Because you've had some very prominent people on. Uh, do they get alongside you and give you a little, for your bone or two, you know, give you, a, give you, an, uh, you know, uh, an inside tip of some kind? I'd say that I've never asked. And so some people have become, well, hopefully they've become friends and occasionally, you know, there's a couple of them that, you know, do put out sort of um, newsletters or whatever um, to, to their punters. They're kind enough to add me to that for free, but mainly no, you know, I wouldn't ask anybody for tips. And if they, if they send me them, then I'm very pleased because knowing who they are, then I would always back them, you know, without question. But I've, that's something I've never done. I've never pestered anyone. And some, you know, there's been some really good punters that I'd like to think I've become friendly with. Um, they don't tell me any tips, but you know it's nice to have met somebody that you get along with, and you talk about other stuff. And yeah, you know I've been very, very lucky, and it's you know I've been that doing that series has been wonderful. Yeah, let's talk about betting people then. I think the two hundred and fiftieth recently went up. I think the vast majority of those betting people interviews you have you've overseen. Uh, whose idea was the uh, betting people interviews, and did you ever imagine it would prove to be so popular? It started by chance, really, because I when I got made redundant from Turf TV, I worked as an SP returner for eight nearly nine years. Um, I've become friendly with Ben Key from Star Sports. So 
when I got made redundant, he basically got me on a Zoom call and he said, we want to give you a job. We'll match your previous salary. We don't know what you're going to do yet. Ben was happy with that. I was happy with that, but I don't think anybody else much was. So struggled to find a niche for myself. Um, and I think it was, you know, I was probably coming near the end of my uh, tenure, having come up with nothing really original apart from doing my betting ring blogs, but they were, you know, too few and far between. And as I had a press accreditation, I was invited along with the other press people to the Sydney Arms in Chelsea to interview the jockeys from the Shergar Cup. Hayley Turner was one of them. So Ben said, go along. And then he messaged me and he said, take your camera with you and just film them rather than talk to them, film them. So I sat there in front of a Hayley Turner and poked my camera at her. And we did a little interview and we put them up. I think they're still up online somewhere. We put them up and he said, that's a brilliant idea. We'll, We'll do Neil Channing. So the first one, and that was before it was called Betting People, we hadn't had an idea for it for about, I think it was about 50 episodes, and a guy called Dave Stewart on the firm, he fought the idea, the name. But, so we went along to a, a nice French restaurant on a Monday afternoon with a little tripod, which we'd invested in, about nine quid, and I pointed the guy, I had questions for Neil, and he said, right, I've read them, you don't need to ask them to me, I've memorised them all, I'll just answer them. So it was the easiest interview ever, I just pointed the camera at Neil <laughs> and he just answered all the questions in little segments and when he finished there was no timings as such we just when he finished I just turned it off turned it back on again and then we had a really nice meal and uh, we put those up and blimey I think we had about 6,000 views on the first part and it was like Ben's like Eureka this is this is what we're going to have to do you know and he's a written a very early on what he's, his dream was he wanted it to be what he called the Wikipedia of the game and five years on, we've we've averaged about 50 a year. And that's what it's become. And I'm really proud of it. I've done, I don't know how many I've actually done. I've not counted them up. You know, there's a few people in the team. But uh, I'm very proud of it. And I'm sort of emotionally attached to the betting people now, you know. So uh, it's been a privilege. And there's so many lovely, you know, wonderful people I've met doing it. Yeah. Uh, do you ever get stopped in the street or recognised by people? Maybe just your voice? <laughs> not stopped in the street. But at the races, quite often... And it is quite often, actually, I've had blown me on trouble. People do come and say, I really like your blogs or I really like your interviews. Or, and that's lovely when they do. It's really, really nice, you know. If they don't say it quite loud enough, I say, can you say it a bit louder, a bit nearer Ben? Give me a pay rise. It's funny, actually, I, remember I was getting off a plane in Singapore and there was a man reading Skid Mob. As I was getting off, I could see him reading. And, I, and um, this was a few years back now. And I, I started to chat to him about that. That's my first... Memory. Oh, that's of, amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all around the world. So about uh, asking you about the uh, the interviews. Obviously, you've had some big names on, and you you might be reticent to name names. You know, I'm going to ask anyway. Which uh, you've told me who you first, but which of the people you've interviewed surprised you the most? Is there somebody that caught you off guard, or someone that surprised me enough? Peter Phillips was is Princess Anne's son, and I turned up at, at an office just off Buckingham Palace Road, all suited and booted. And I walked in there and he was just there in his jeans and a t-shirt. Nobody else in the entire place, as far as I can tell, apart from me and him. Absolutely, you'd think he was just a bloke from the pub. Down to earth as anything. We did the, we, when he was still doing the, um, when they were trying to put the city racing idea out there. And, you know, that was like, you know, quite surprised. I think it's a Queen's grandson. And he's just talking to me like, you know, just a normal person. I, for some reason, I was, I was surprised by that. But I, I can honestly say... You have to bow to him. <laughs> well, I, you know, I just expected, I expected, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect just this normal chap, totally on his own in this big sort of building, just to come and sit there. I didn't see anybody else all the time I was there. And I was surprised by that, but, you know, that's probably not a very exciting surprise. But uh, I've I've never walked away disappointed. I've never walked away thinking, oh, that was a complete... Everybody I've met, I've really enjoyed doing. I've, that's honest. Yeah. So there's no one that gave you short answers. I was going to ask you that. I just didn't um, want to be there. I don't think you'll even mind me saying this, but it's one of my early ones, and it was somebody that I really was looking forward to finding out about, which is Stephen Little. Now, Stephen Little is, for people that don't know, was the biggest independent bookmaker back in, in the time I was working on the race course uh, in his long muskrat coat. He was driving the course with his Bentley and he would take £100,000 bets at the big meetings. He would take £20,000 bets at McNabbott. And he lived, I can't say the address, but he lives in a massive house where the buses go past in the city that he lives. And I was so keen to find out about him. And he sat there and he told me, bugger all. <laughs> really? I mean, you know, I was, like, I was trying to wheedle it out of him. And since then, Mark Holder's interviewed him on their podcast. 
And he told Mark a bit more. And Rupert Mackerson, he was another fantastic character that I interviewed, the bad baronet. He's now editing a book that Stephen's writing. Now, I'm hoping after five years, because I saw Stephen at Reading Station the other day, just bumped into him and he said he's on chapter four. So, and he's only 24 in it, I think, at that point. So I'm hoping that he's going to spill the beans properly because I'm fascinated to find out how he got from being a floor man on a push bike in Silver Rings to being a multi-millionaire taking bets off of yeah. the top players. I heard Mark hold this podcast with him. So he's a fascinating character. Yeah, it sounded, Mark did his best too, but obviously Stephen just sounds, you know, keeps, plays his cards close to his chest. But uh, Mark was a bit more persistent than I was. <laughs> he, he, he kept at him a bit more. But uh, yeah, but no, Stephen's not giving too much away. So I'm hoping he's, he, he, you know, he lets it all out in his book, which is going to be a must read as would Rupert's when he writes that as well. Yeah, a couple more books there. So uh, what about any interviews you regret? Maybe, you know, because in the betting world, there's a lot of bravado, at least going into this in the book, a lot of the times it's the flash exterior, but sometimes when you dig beneath the surface, the reality can be a bit different. Is there any interviews you since regret? I obviously probably don't expect you to name names, but uh, from that series? No, because we've always, I've run, I run everybody that's a punter by Ben, because Ben knows everything about everything puntery. Mm-hmm. So he would know if somebody's not what they say they are. And also we've drawn the line of quite, especially in the early days, quite a few people messaging me saying, I'm a professional punter, I'm 21, I've got the game by the bollocks, interview me. And we sort of said, come back when you're 25 or whenever. And I think, I can't even remember their names now, they've all disappeared off the face of the earth, which was not entirely surprising because we all know how difficult it is. Everybody has a stroke of luck, and nearly everybody thinks they've got it by the cobblers when they've had a when they've had a few winners. But most people we've actually interviewed, well, everyone we've actually interviewed has been genuine when it comes to punting, and they're still out there, still doing it. As far as I know, anyway. As far as I but know, that's, that's the difficult thing, isn't it? You can win maybe one year, but to continually win is, is takes a lot of lot of skill, a uh, lot of hard work, no doubt. Who was the most difficult person to get on the show? Any lengthy negotiations or? Big rider requests from certain guests? No, there's been no, what Ben would describe as divas. There's been no divas. Patrick Beach took probably a couple of years to get on. He wanted to do it when the time was right for him. I, I didn't, you know, and I would get, he would say, you know, he'd ring me up and he would say, I'm not ready yet, but it, we will be ready soon. And when I did him, he was an absolute gentleman, you know, lovely chap. And uh, I, think I, I think I got on really well with him. So he was worth waiting for. The one we did for 250, Roland De Wolf, we tried him early doors. He put in Martin Raymond, which is his mate, to do one, but he was saying he's not doing one himself. And then he out of the blue, he said, I'll do 250, number 250. So we said, yep, jumped at the chance there. So Roland took a while. Barney Curley was the one that got away, unfortunately, um, but I nearly got there. No, most, you know, and there's a lot of, a lot of people, especially the punters, have said no. Yeah. There's nothing in it for them to be in the public eye. So a lot of the shrewdest, like the guy that runs My Little Tip, that, you know, it's just not them got the ego. They, for whatever reason, they would rather be totally anonymous. And I can understand that. But unfortunately, and that's a lot of the most successful punters because there are lots out there under the radar that just will not put their head above the parapet, which you can understand. But it's just from a series point of view. That's quite, you know, it's a little bit disappointing because you want to get those sort of people on there, but um, that's fine. Yeah. That is, you know, that's a tricky one. You can't have punters all the time anyway, otherwise that get boring for people. So it's good to have a mixture, which we try and do. Yeah, certainly, and I appreciate that because often if someone that doesn't have something to promote or reason to come on for their profile or whatever it might be, it's sometimes tricky to get them on, just as it is for this podcast sometimes. Like, no, I don't, I can't come on or I won't come on or... You know, I don't want to spill the beans. So for whatever reason, they like to go under the radar a little bit. So is there anybody that um, you really want to get on, that you want to get a request in or put it out there? One of the last copies of Skint Mob and a handwritten letter to JP McManus. Obviously, somebody marked my card, the best place to send it, where you would definitely get it. Sadly, there's been no phone call. So I tried that with Barney Curley and he rang me. And I actually went to his house for a cup of tea. He still didn't do the interview, but I think, it, you know, if things hadn't come panned out as they had, I think I would have. Because the last thing he said to me was that when people try as hard as you, they normally get what they want in the end. But um, I had the one-to-one interview with him. So, you know, I'll treasure that because he's always been my hero. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was the one that got away. There's, there's loads of people, you know, people that probably would never do it. Probably the best ones are the ones I don't even know about yet. Those under-the-radar people. I keep discovering people, Mark McCard, they send me a message. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. You know, this would be a good one to do. And I love that. So if anybody listening to this 
does know any someone that would be a good fit for this series, give me a shout because we're always looking for people that we don't know, which quite often prove to be the best ones for you know viewers and viewing figures and that sort of thing. Yeah, there you go. Get your uh, get your suggestions into Simon. And I was going to ask you as well about uh, before we wrap up a few questions on what the reality of, of modern bookmaking, the direction of travel for it. We've kind of circled around some of these topics, but uh, you know, whether it be affordability limits, whether it be uh, problem gambling, account restrictions, are you concerned about where it's going and the reality of, of modern day book betting and bookmaking? Well, I think the worst it gets, of course, where I think some of the, you know, for lots of reasons, some of the people there have behaved, some of the businesses have behaved atrociously. The first thing they've got to do is separate the casinos from people having a punt yeah. on the horses or the greyhounds because, you know, it's not the same, is it? Somebody getting drunk and going home and just spinning on red and black and waking up in the morning with a hangover and realising they've done two grand, you know, it's not the same as people spending five hours trying to fathom out the winner of the, uh, the Cheltenham Gold Cup and trying to have £100 each way and get restricted to 13 quid or something. That's got to be sorted out. But I'm, a, as I've said, a big fan of the on-course. You can still get on. So anybody that seriously can't get on to the figures that they want, go on course and get on. That's what you've got to do because the, the, what people have to realise is six places the night before aren't for people like you. If you're winners, that that's not... Remember the old adverts for the Building Society, brand new customers only? That's that. You know, so you can't scream and shout, you can't get on with Sky Bet at six places or seven places or what, you know. Those offers aren't for you. If you're successful, then you need to bet with serious people that will take serious bets. So the bookmakers out there that will, lots of independents that will still take you on to the normal terms. And if you come on course, you know, Royal Ascot, you can get 20 grand on in one go. You know, it was happening this year at Royal Ascot. So if you're clever enough to beat the bookmakers, then you're clever enough to get your money on, is my opinion. It won't be so easy for you, but then, you know, nobody's going to make it easy for you if you're good enough to beat them. That, But I do think the bookmakers restrict people I won't mention the name of the bookie, but I opened an account about five years ago and it was in January and Andrew put up three winners in a row on the all-weather. I think they're like 10 to 1, 8 to 1 and 7 to 1. And that account was closed. Well, if they'd held on for a minute, Andrew, the same as everybody else, will have tipping horses at those prices, will have bad losing runs. And I very nearly came a cropper myself about 10 years ago. We had a really, really good year. And I worked out that instead of having a score a point, which I was having at the time, if I'd had 40 a point, I'd have cleared off my credit cards and I'd have won a nice few quid. Well, I don't need to tell you the rest, do I? Mm-hmm. You know, and you learn by your mistakes. I know you can't even say it these days. If bookmakers gave winning punters a bit more rope and were brave enough about it, they probably, a lot of them would probably knock themselves out because most people lose ultimately. I know everybody on Twitter wins, but no, they don't no. really, do they? Bet responsibly, of course, but... If people want, if people want to open their shoulders after a little winning streak, oh, let them open their shoulders. That's what I think bookmakers should do, unless they turn out to be Barney Curley or Patrick Beach or somebody. But then I'm sure those people are a very, very small minority of their customer base. If they gave them enough, a long enough go. Yeah, I, th- I think there's an acceptance across from the industry side of it for that. Uh some of the bigger firms especially are too quick to restrict because someone might win early on but that is possibly just positive variance if you like and it'll swing back the other way because like you say it's very hard to constantly win year in year out especially if you're not just taking the low-hanging fruit which is you know best odds guaranteed or extra places uh, and you're able to actually make a profit just by betting you know at a price uh, on course or with an independent, for example, which maybe they're not offering all the bells and whistles, but uh, they're offering you a fair price and will lay you a fair bet. So that's some some good insight there. And maybe we will see more people going on course, especially with some of the online issues that people are facing. But uh, that's that's good insight on that one. Today, I wanted to, to end things a little bit differently for a bit of fun, to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions to where you can just choose one of the answers put forward. I've got a couple of easy ones and maybe it'll get a little bit trickier. So I'm just going to ask you, Simon, which of these do you prefer? Just, you know, quick answers. On course or online betting? On course. A nice easy one. Win or each way betting? Each way is the bookmaker's Achilles heel in a lot of races. There you go. Uh, flat or jumps racing? Jumps. Jumps. UK or Irish? Um, as much as I enjoy the Irish, I've been brought up with the UK. Give me Newton Abbott. Give me Exeter. Love it. I'm in heaven. Okay. Ascot or Cheltenham? Cheltenham. 
Tottenham. All right, so here we go. A little bit trickier coming up. Uh, bookmaker or professional punter? Um, professional punter, because I'm in total admiration for people that can make it pay and continue to make it pay. You know, it's so difficult. Total admiration. Yeah. Patrick Veach or Harry Finlay? Well, that, that really is chalk and cheese. <laughs> um, Patrick, I've met a few times since we did the interview and I really get on with him. Harry Finlay, I really got on with him when I met him. I've not met him since. I imagine they're both... I've never been out for a drink with either of them. I'd imagine they're both be fantastic company. It'd be evens each or two. Patrick just had it because he's given me some very good advice about other things in life. And he's a very, very kind and sort of thoughtful chap. So, yeah, Patrick. Patrick by Yeah. Okay. And finally, this is I thought, Ben Keith or Denise Coates. Well, I've got to say Ben Keith. I mean, Ben is a character. He's been absolutely wonderful to me. He's, you know, if it wasn't for Ben, you know, I don't know where I'd be. He's, um, when you get the dot, 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 uh, WhatsApp message at whatever time of the night it might be, you sort of go, oh, no, what now? But no, he's a very, very kind man. And he's been very, very kind to me. And he's, you know, these betting people things that I do, the people I've met, the experiences I've had are all down to Ben Keith. Nobody else but Ben. Uh, and he's, a, you know, I've nothing bad to say about him. Okay, that should guarantee you another 250 interviews, I think, there, Simon. <laughs> you can't ever guarantee anything, I tell you. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, more plans for more videos in the future? Yeah, I've got a list, literally, as long as my arm, that um, that Ben has fired at me, and, you know, some hopeful, some real possible. I've cleared the decks now. I've got interviews in the can ready up to the end of the year. Other people do produce them as well, so sometimes the waiting gets a bit longer. And then I'll you know, sort of kick on again in the new year and try and get, um, you know, it's quite a lot of people sort of say they'll do it and then they can't for whatever reason. It's never plain sailing. It, you know, it's, it's not just getting somebody to agree to do it and then going up and doing it. There's quite often a few pitfalls in between. But um, yeah, as long as he wants me to do them, I'll keep doing them. Oh, I look forward to that. And, and, and how can people find out more about you and your book? Fire out some links if you like. Well, well sa- sadly, I used to have a box of skint mobs printed up custom-wise every Christmas, but I got too much. That's one thing I did listen to on Twitter in the end. I always sold them, but they always like took the mickey. So now if anybody really wants to buy a skip mob, you can probably get one on eBay or somewhere like that, or Kindle is still available. It'll always be available on Kindle. Mm-hmm. Uh, my website is just simonnot.co.uk where I do like local meetings and I sort of do interviews with uh, point-to-point trainers and up-and-coming jockeys, that sort of thing. Uh, and obviously the Star Sports website is where all the... Uh, the betting people interviews and the big meetings from previous years are what I've done. And on my website as well is where you find the AK bet stuff because he, I write them on my website for his, for him when he employs me. So all that's, all that's there. Yeah. So I'm a not.co.uk. Yeah. Go check it out. I enjoy reading your blogs and uh, I got my copy of Skimp Mob on Kindle as well. So although, you know, the print run is no longer available, you can obviously still pick it up online and, and read it on your, on your Kindle device. So go check it out. I really encourage people. I, I did enjoy the book. You know, it brings the ring to life. It brings that side of things to the characters and you can almost um, get a sense of the excitement of, of being a part of that. So a really good read. So, Simon, thank you ever so much. Look forward to watching more videos, reading more blogs from you in the future, and um, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks, Pete. I really appreciate it. Uh, you asking me, and it was a pleasure to meet you when we did yours. And uh, anyone that's lasted this long, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, everybody. All right. Thank you ever so much, Simon. All the best for next year. All right, mate. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this very latest Smart Betting Club podcast. If you enjoyed it and are keen to find out more on how the SBC service can help you and your betting, you can save 5% on the cost of membership simply by using the coupon code PODCAST. Visit smartbettingclub.com, hit subscribe and enter the coupon code PODCAST to save 5%.